Welcome to Oasis. All right. I'm going to pray. We're going to get into it. God, I want to thank you for your grace and mercy. I, this, this thing keeps just coming back into my brain, into my mind, into my heart. How blessed we are to walk in this beauty and sacredness and freedom that it's that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with you and you just invite us in and you call us into that lord i believe the word that you have for us this morning is important i think it's something we all struggle with in our lives and lord i pray that you would even begin now before we even start that you're churning in the hearts and souls of the people here that are going to hear it lord i pray that your that my words would be your words to them. That they will hear exactly what you need them to hear. As we all come into this building in different places and with different hurts and different brokenness and different joys. You know us intimately, Lord. You know everything about us. And we just thank you for that. You know everything, everything about us, and you love us all the same. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so we are in week four of the letter to to John. Um, Not to John, from John, 1 John. We're just going to launch right into it. So, Will, if you'd put that first slide up there. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the introduction to John's letter. This is what he writes right out of the box. There's no greeting. There's no happy, happy, joy, joy. He just comes right into it and he is describing Jesus. He's describing who Christ is without actually ever using his name. He says that which is from the beginning and he starts his gospel off. In the beginning was the word and he's talking about Jesus being with God. He says we've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. We've wrestled with the truth of of who he is. And so he brings it all down into this this physical reality that they've experienced, firsthand experience. They've seen, they've touched, they've heard, they've witnessed. And they've also, and I love that, they've wrestled with this Jesus guy. They've, they've kind of tried to grab a hold of it and try to, try to make sense of something that, that almost is, you can't make sense of. Because if you can ever make sense of God, he fails to be God. And so they wrestle with him and they say, but, but, but we know he is the truth. Now, John, we have to understand, is writing, because he comes out of the box like this, it's, it's an inherent understanding that he is writing to people who have accepted this truth. Now, yes, they may be a little skewed in their belief. They're wrestling with some false teachings that have come into the church. But basically, they are Jesus followers. They have accepted this definition of Christ for who he is. 
And he's writing to the church to encourage the church, to build them up, to correct a false doctrine that is being introduced into the church. He wants to make sure that that they know the truth. Now, I would say that the entire New Testament is written in this way. That it's written to people who are following Jesus. And yes, people who maybe are just trying to kick the tires, trying to figure this thing out. They could, they could be, um, God can reveal himself to them through the scripture. But basically these things are written to people who are with or, or following Jesus. Maybe not perfectly. Maybe they don't have all the answers. Maybe even in fact they need a good spanking every once in a while. But it's written to the church. It's written to us. Now, I, as I was thinking through this, I believe that the church has two messages to give. And the first message is an evangelistic evangelistic message to the world that we would share, we would proclaim, we would declare the truth of Jesus Christ as Messiah. That he is our, our, our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the reason why that we can stand before God in his righteousness, forgiven. And we're to share that with people who don't know that, who've never heard of that, who are wrestling with it, with the broken, with the disparaged, with the hopeless, even with the arrogant and the proud. We're we're called to share. That's the message of the church to the world. But we also have another message. And it's the message, a continual message to the saints to the believers, to the followers, that we are to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. And in that truth, we're to build each other up. We are to establish each other in the faith. We are to come together for that encouragement. We're to love each other in truth. In truth. You see, sometimes truth really hurts and it stings. But it's still the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ. We're to point people into a deeper relationship, an intimate relationship with God. Offer them opportunities of spiritual formation. And as we wrestle with this letter, this is exactly what John is doing for the people he's writing to. And this is what he's doing for us. Building us up and grounding us in the truth. A few weeks ago when we started this series, we looked at chapter 5, verse 19, and it said uh, in there that the the entire world is under the control of the evil one, which kind of just... Kind of just, it's kind of like the wet blanket on the party a little bit, but, but it's, it's still true. What that means is we live in this world, church lives in this world, Christian lives in this world, and this world is opposed to the things of God. They stand in sharp contrast to the things of God. And this world will do everything that it can to drag us down, to pull us away. If the enemy can't have your soul, he will take your life. And maybe not in the physical, but definitely in the abundant life that Jesus came to offer you. He will rob you of that life if he can. If he can't have your soul, he wants to make you depressed, sad, overwhelmed, hopeless, living a defeated life in this world. That's what he wants for us. Because if we live that way, We're not going to share Christ. And it's going to throw stuff at us. 
tempt us with things that are going to claim to satisfy us. Tempt us with, with answers that aren't really the answers. Tempt us with things that this is what you need. This is what's always been missing in your life. This is, what, this, is what, this is what's going to make you happy. And if the church focuses on those things, on those temptations, we will lose our focus on Jesus. We will lose the focus that we have on Christ and focus on things that will, off, that will give us no satisfaction, that have no answer, that can't build us up but can only tear us down. They will keep our focus from the Lord. We are in a constant battle for our very soul. And the enemy is always on the prowl, roaming around like a lion looking for someone to devour because of this reality in our world, and that sounds pretty heavy and scary, and sometimes it is. It can be. But the reality, uh, there's, there's two extremes that I've found in the church. The first extreme in the church, and we've kind of uh, glossed over this, is that we try to Christianize the worlds. We try to, we're going to bring this nation back to a Christian nation. And so we try, to, we try to invoke legislation and certain political ideologies and certain political parties because we're going to win this country back to God. Good luck. Because the world is under the control of the evil one. And not only is it not going to happen, it would be unbiblical. Now we can turn people on to Jesus... We can, we can introduce people to Jesus and watch him transform their lives and put them all back together again and make them whole. But we're never going to have a Christian nation. Just watch the Grammys. We're never going to have a Christian nation. But we can have more Christians in our nation if the church does what the church is supposed to do and love people into the kingdom of God. Now, the other extreme that I see in the church is we want to retreat from the world. We want to build up our little, little walls and our little boxes. We want to huddle up, and it feels comfortable in here. It feels good. And, and nobody uses potty mouth in church, but not until they get into their car anyway. And so it's just, it's, it, it, feels, it, feel, it just feels right in here. But that's not an option either. We can't hole up in the building. We can't just, just hold up here and, and just feel like this is where we should be and we have to keep ourselves from out there. We are called to be the light of the world. We are called to be salt. When we're to let our light shine into the world, we're to share our stories of what Christ has done for us and what he continues to do for us. We are to be agents of grace and mercy and peace. And the love of God. Amen. That's who we are. And so we can't just think we're going to fix it all if we vote the right way or get this law. In place. You can't, you can't, never mind. And, and we can't, I don't want to get political. And, and you can't just hold up and just stay away from the world. We have to be out there loving and serving and being Christ. Now, you know, as... As I read through the scriptures, the things that are revealed about God and the things that are revealed about us with God, I have learned and it's been reinforced that our fight is not against the world. The scriptures tell us, Paul writes in Ephesians, that our fight is not against flesh and blood. 
but it's against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil. That's where the fight is. That's where the battle is. And in John's letter, in the next verse that we're going to look at, now get this, we could win. We can rise above the spiritual darkness. Those spiritual forces can be defeated because of the power of Christ within us. The power of Christ within us. We are more than just conquerors. In the midst of the brokenness and the pain and the trauma that this world suffers, we can make a stand and we can come out on top. And it's, this, 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 it's what this next verse in John's letter, and we're only going to land on one verse today, reflects that, that we, we can win. We got this. And so, Will, the next slide. This is verse 4. He says, we write this to you. We write this to make our joy complete. And so he explains all these things about Jesus, about he's the word of life and what they've seen and fellowship. And then he says, we write this to make our joy complete. Our joy. There's a collective feel in that. There's, there's uh, John, and he's, and he's experiencing joy, and the people that are with him, and all the people that he's writing to. And I would even say, because God has given us this word, he's writing to us also. And there is this passion, this burning desire in him that everyone would know this joy. That everyone would experience this joy. That it would not be lacking in anything, but it would be full. The fullness of joy. Not just scraps. Not just a little joy. Not just happy, happy. But, but, but real joy in completeness and fullness. Even, even, even when things are coming unglued, which they are. And they've always been coming unglued. It's nothing new. We can experience joy today. Now. In this present moment, in all fullness. And it's nothing new, this idea of joy in, in the New Testament. We see it over and over and over again. In fact, Paul would write in, in Philippians, he would say, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Paul is telling people, man, <laughs> it's going to be hard. But rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And we see this through the New Testament all of the times. It's, it's a thread that runs through it. And now we, the church, as we have Christ in us, burning in our souls, lighting our spirits, we are called Christian. When the power of the Holy Spirit takes root inside us, we are now Christian. And yes, I know that's just, it's, it's just kind of a word we throw around these days. But it is a word that is deep with tradition and meaning and sacredness. And it shouldn't be just, 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 just a word. It means that you are a follower of the way, that you're a Jesus follower, that you are light, that you're salt, that you're an agent of righteousness, not in yourself because of what Jesus has given us. That is Christian. And Christian, you, we find ourselves in this world under all the ungodly control that's here. And you ready for this? We can be filled with joy. Filled with joy. Complete. Lacking in nothing. Filled with joy. Now this is this joy. It's, it's not our own definition. 
It's not of our own doing, but it's, it's God's definition. And it's, and it's his own doing. In fact, I would say that if we're not walking in joy, then our witness for Christ is it's suffering. If you're not walking in joy, then, then we are not living in the abundant life that Jesus has offered us. And I know that might sound hard and, and, and harsh and, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, you don't know what I've gone through and, and I'm not trying to minimize any pain or suffering. But, but if you'll just stay with me for a few minutes, we're going to unpack this whole idea and hopefully it'll clarify a little bit more what, what I mean. As Jesus followers, we don't get to walk around all depressed and anxious about the world we live in. Maybe I should say it this way. We shouldn't be walking around all depressed and anxious about the world we live in. What we're seeing today on the news, on the internet, in the newspapers, what we're experiencing today is biblical. We can't expect anything else. In fact, there should be a sense of, a sense of, of, of relief a little bit that the Bible is actually true. And what the Bible says is going to happen is actually playing out in our world today. And that is why it is so important for the Christian to know the scripture, to understand the scripture, to be in an ever deepening relationship with God. And and as the church, we need to be very realistic about the world we live in. We need to be realistic about what's going on. And we need to be aware of what is going on, why it's going on. And I I would say that we even to know, we need to know the why even more than people who maybe don't know God. So that we can give them an answer. Why it's going on. We need, the church needs to keep it real. Real with ourselves. Real with the people around us. We can't take all of this stuff and just look at it from a very superficial level. We have to look at it with, with spiritual discerning eyes. We know who God is. We know who we are in Christ. And we know what's going on below the surface. The world is under the control of the evil one. We know the cause, and it is not flesh, and it is not blood. Now, saying that, we also can't be walking around minimizing all of the brokenness in the world. We can't just be like, eh, whatever. And I would, even, I would even add to that, that we can't minimize our own brokenness and our own problems. Like, well, you know, things aren't as bad as they seem. See, the truth is, sometimes they are. And sometimes they're worse than they seem. And it's okay to be real with that. It's okay to, to engage that and, and to be honest and open with that. And because it's because we know that there is no other fix than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to put the world back together and he will put us back together in our brokenness. If we come to him honestly and openly. And that means that we can come to him angry, upset, frustrated, shaking our hands at him. Because he would rather have that from us than praying in your best King James. We need to keep it real as the church with ourselves and with the world around us. See, it doesn't work trying to help. It, it doesn't work trying to self-help yourself out of your problem. 
And so as we move through this life, as we move through this world, as we engage people who, who, uh, who don't know the truth of Jesus, as we, as we come into relationship with those people, and we should, we should be as the church coming into relationship, I know with non-Christians, I, ooh, we should. But the danger in those things is that we can lose we can lose our focus and we can get swept up in all of that anxiety and all of that hopelessness. We come to the place of maybe even asking, resolving, <laughs> what can one person do? If the things of this world, the things of this world, what's taking place are pulling you down, then I'd say that you're not experiencing the fullness of the joy of the Lord. Because it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. We are not put on this planet to try to make the best of a crappy situation. That's not what God has for us. And that shouldn't be our posture. I have spoken to way too many people, church people, who kind of just resolve themselves to a defeatist attitude. They sound like Christian Eeyores. Right. Thanks for noticing me. Um, we're just strangers here and we're, we're passing through. This is not our home. Which is true, okay? But that's not the way the scripture intended it to be. It's not, been, it's not to be in this defeated posture. It's not for us to give up. Because that defeated attitude stands in sharp contrast to what the Bible teaches us about the joy of the Lord. And so if you're an Eeyore, stop it and be a poo. (laughs) That'll teach me to ad lib. All right. Oh, Lord. That's Winnie the Pooh. Uh-huh. Or Kanga. Tigger. Tigger. Woo-hoo. So this top's made out of rubber. about it. Never. I digress. So, but, but what I also see in the church is there's, there's, a, um, there, there, there's a fearfulness that permeates churches today. There, there, there's, there's a fear. And in fact, John's going to address that later on in chapter 4 when he says perfect love casts out fear. And he's going to talk about that. And, and, and then we see that in Paul, as he writes uh, to Timothy, in the second letter of Timothy, he says, The spirit that God gives us does not make us timid, but gives us what? It gives us power. It gives us love. It gives us a sound mind. That's the spirit of God. That's what the spirit of God gives us, not fear. As a church, we need to be aware of what's going on. And we are aware of what's going on. And we know the cause of what's going on. And so we don't have to be afraid of anything. Because we walk with Christ. We know who he is and we should know who he is in us. Greater is he that is in us than the loser that is in the world. This is exactly how I believe legalism enters into the church. 
this, 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 this stifling, sucking the life out of people, legalism, people trying to control people, people trying to control behaviors, pastors trying to control entire communities, getting them to toe the line, follow the rules, make sure that you do things this way. The reason why that kind of legalism is in the church And I I believe it with all my heart, and you can disagree, but I guarantee you're going to be wrong on this one. The reason why I believe that legalism is in the church is because there is a spirit of fear in the church. And fear sucks the life out of everything. And the spirit of joy is nowhere to be found. But there's fear. Fear, uh, joy gives life. Joy restores life. Joy is life and it's light. Fear robs people of that joy. And so John writes, we write this to make our joy complete. Okay, so what is it? What is this joy you speak of, Dennis? That's a very good question. Now I'm going to say this about that. We can't define this idea of joy with some pithy little Christianese saying that you can put on a coffee cup or t-shirt. I mean, it took Paul an entire chapter in Corinthians to, to define love. And so we're not going to do it with just, with just one little line or one little word. Because joy, biblical joy, is it's, a, it's, an, it's an interior posture of your heart and soul. It's something that's sacred. It's something that's holy. It goes way beyond any definition that Webster could get it to could give it. And to order for us to understand it, to get a hold of it, we have to look at it from a biblical perspective. Because it's it's only from the biblical perspective that joy has any weight. That's where the truth of it is. Joy without joy without a biblical definition will not survive in this world today. It cannot survive in this world today. As we look at the life of Jesus, he was filled with joy. He was a man of joy, but yet he's also described as as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. But yet he had joy. And James, in his letter, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when it all hits the fan and you're sprayed up with it. It's paraphrased a little bit, but you you get the idea. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face those trials and tribulations, when life comes at you hard. And so our definition of joy has to be rooted in what the Bible says about it. Or it's not joy. And we can never fully possess it. It has to reflect that reality. And so in that light... It's not some happy, pleasant, emotional feeling. It's not rainbows and glitter and unicorns and blue skies. It's not that everything is going along smoothly and everything is great and you have no problems. And all you can do every day is wake up and just tiptoe through the tulips. And, and you're smiling all the time. There's no pain and there's no suffering. That's, that's not joy. I would even go so far as to say that you cannot produce joy in yourself. You have nothing, we have nothing in us that can because real, true, biblical, sacred, divine, godly joy is produced by the Spirit of God alive and well inside of our heart and soul. 
that's where joy comes from. And so it's not based on anything we can see, anything external, but it's internal. Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to push the envelope a little farther. You will never experience joy. True, lasting, fulfilling joy. Unless your interior life possesses contentment. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, easy easy does it there, Pastor. Mm -mm. I saw that. And you will never experience that interior of contentment until you put your trust in the Lord. The scriptures tell us to trust in the Lord with all your might. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, all your ways present them to him. That's where trust begins. And when you begin to trust, that's where you begin to become content. And as you begin to become content, that's where joy comes from. To trust in God is to allow him to work in your soul, to loosen the reins and allow God to take control of your life. That's a scary place to be. I get it. But that's what it means to trust. See, in our flesh, and as the Bible, when it talks about this idea of flesh, it's talking about our humanity. It's talking about our sinful humanity. In our flesh, we like to think we're in control. We like to keep control. Control gives us a certain amount of satisfaction. It's like empty calories. It's like eating, it's like eating one of those rice cakes. It might taste good, but there ain't nothing there. And so we like to hold on to control. We like to think we can maneuver through these things. We like to make the plan, figure it all out, execute the plan, and then kick back and say, look at what I've done. But the reality is, we the only control you have is the control that God has allowed you to control. And so I'm not sure that's control at all. Because God is sovereign, and he's good, and he knows what's good for us. See, if we look to find our satisfaction in the things that we can control, that we can hold together, that we can just execute, that we don't need God, then our satisfaction is going to be short-lived because it's all been grounded in us. And people, humans, men, women, husband, wives, brothers, sisters, we make terrible gods. Terrible gods. And so when we trust in the Lord... It's then we can begin to have joy. It's then that a biblical joy begins to invade our heart and our soul. Now, this doesn't mean you just get to sit around and do nothing. This doesn't mean, you know, well, I'm going to let God take control. So I'm just going to sit here until he makes that deposit in my checking account so I can pay the bills. No, we go out and we work. I tried this week. I said, okay, God, if you're in control, I need you to grow some more tread on my front tires on my truck because I don't want to replace them. He didn't. And so I had to go replace those tires. See, it's not just you sitting around doing nothing. It's we, we have to take responsibility for our lives. But in that responsibility, we recognize that God is in control. And it's from that place of trusting in God 
that we find a heart of contentment. And the heart of contentment is where joy flourishes and lives. That's why biblical joy, this joy, is probably one of the single most strongest powers in the world. The strongest power in the world because it's filled with strength. It's filled with wisdom. And it's filled with assurance. There's nothing superficial about it. This joy finds its beginning, its middle, and its ending in God and God alone. And so there's strength there. There's sacredness. There's holiness. There's wisdom. There's not everything. It's, it's, it's the superfood of the Christian life. Joy. It's dynamic. It's active. It transcends whatever circumstance you're going through. No matter how bad it seems, you can know this joy. Because it is, finds its roots in Jesus. And it's, it enables us to meet head on, head on, the evil that's in this world. And we don't have to be anxious, hopeless, frustrated. Those things don't really, they don't, they're not compatible with joy. But we know that Christ, God, sovereign, is in control. But I want, I want to make sure that you understand that joy never minimizes your pain or your suffering. If a Christian ever tells you, just get over this thing, you need to be joyful. You have my permission to poke them in the eye in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Boink! My pastor said, joy never minimizes your pain. But joy is a confidence of knowing that in some sacred, holy way, God lives with us in the midst of that pain and that suffering, and that brokenness. It's the soul responding to the truth of Jesus Christ. Our prayer should always be, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. Because when that prayer is prayed from a humble heart, it opens the floodgates for the Holy Spirit to come in. And transform us from the inside out to reveal the truth of who God is. And when that begins to take place, the fullness of the joy of the Lord will rest deep down inside you. And it's in that place you will find strength. God, we want to thank you for the gift of joy and that we can have it we don't have to fear anything. Thank you for the love that you have for us. Lord, I pray. I pray for those here this morning who joy seems to be fleeting. They're questioning you, God. First, Lord, I ask that you would give them a sense that it's okay to come to you with those hard questions. Lord, I pray that they would not stop asking until you've answered. I 
I think as we have a time of prayer up here this morning, I think some of you need to come forward and be prayed for. Uh, I don't know who, I'm not pointing on anybody, but some of you got some stuff that, that the Lord wants to work in and release and heal that you can, you can know his trust and you can trust in him and that he could give you that gift of contentment and that your joy could be filled full. And so, Lord, I pray that you're even speaking to those people now, that they would come forward and allow the brothers and sisters to pray over them your words. We love you. Thank you. We pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Go Broncos. I love you guys.